Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of a series on gap-filling, when government and governing institutions fail. We're talking with community leaders about how nonprofit and advocacy organizations, as well as local grassroots groups, are doing the work for the community when the government can't or won't. So, Casey, one of the things we've been talking about a lot is the criminal justice system. And that is kind of an example of government failure or success if you are, you know, grumpy and... uh, (laughs) Yeah, to me, it's have, failure. To me, it's a 100% failure. <laughs> right. I, I think maybe if you have a twisted perception of reality, success. But uh, I mean, I, I think in many ways. You're a white supremacist. <laughs> right. Yeah, sure. Then it's very successful. Um, maybe a little but, too snarky this time around. <laughs> perhaps. 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 But that's okay. We can uh, we can cut that if we have to. But I think, and, and this is this was right, some of the impetus for our series one, which is governing during time of pandemic is that it highlighted for us that there was institutional governing institutions that were failing in, in several aspects. And one of the things we talked about them was the criminal justice system. Now, uh, obviously in recent weeks, other things have uh, been brought definitely to the national uh, level where everybody's talking about it. And that is the failure of law enforcement, uh, specifically around the issue of police brutality as it involves uh, black and brown communities. But there are other ways in which these governing institutions are failing. And and one of those is just in the cash bail system, right? And so thinking about how individuals that have fewer resources and specifically monetary resources are disadvantaged in this system and that that disproportionately falls on the shoulders of uh, people of color. Absolutely. And, and thinking about how then organizations are coming in to one push for change, but also creating spaces to, to, to support people who are in jail, uh, who need cash bail and provide kind of the, the, and think about what are the root causes that got them there in the first place. And so for me, one of the, it's, it's a real, it's, it's a real uh, treat to, to talk to somebody from the bail project who's doing some of this work and, and pushing against and highlighting and uh, addressing kind of government failure in this area of uh, the criminal justice system. Right. And these folks are working within the system to actually disrupt the system. So it's very cool to be able to understand uh, the work that they're doing, but also the folks that are doing the work within the organization. Absolutely. So today we have with us uh, Michael Deegan McCree. Joining us today is Michael Deegan McCree, and he is the Partnerships Coordinator at The Bail Project. Michael comes to The Bail Project from Cut 50, where he served as the policy associate, helping to lead state and federal legislative efforts. At Cut 50, Michael played a pivotal role in helping pass the First Step Act, which New York Times said would deliver the most significant changes to our criminal justice system in a generation. Michael believes in working with bipartisan coalitions to alter the national narrative around our criminal legal system and create empathy for those who have been directly impacted by it. 
Michael also served as a district advisor to California State Senator Nancy Skinner and an assistant to Congresswoman Barbara Lee and hopes to serve an elected office later in his career. He was a 2020 fellow for the New Leadership Council and now sits on the governing board for the Los Angeles chapter. Thanks for joining us today, Michael. No doubt. Thank you for having me, guys. Yeah, we're really excited. So, Michael, just to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you came to the Bail Project? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, when I when I do podcasts or I'm taking any type of interview, the first thing I really like to start with um, is a personal story. A huge part of who I am and a huge part of the reason that I'm involved in politics uh, is due to my adoption when I was three years old. It's a huge part of who I am because I was really, really blessed to be brought up in a house with a mother and father who were very politically involved. They have always taken politics very seriously and understand how the way we vote, uh, how much we stay engaged in our local and national politics has an impact on our everyday lives and the lives of our communities. And I was very lucky to be raised in a house that had that. But in my adoption, uh, it was an open adoption. And so I also had access to my birth family. And so I got to see the drastically different worlds that I grew up in and my birth siblings grew up in, uh, growing up uh, around a table that didn't talk about politics, growing up in a more impoverished community um, that had heightened police surveillance, that had police officers in their school that were uh, living in in food deserts with a lack of accessible health care. And so I think, you know, I got my start in social justice activism and in progressive politics because I saw a drastic difference in the opportunities and resources that I was afforded um, growing up in in the neighborhood that I grew up in, having um, the expectation to to go to university and to get an education. Um, so that I could have a, a healthy, secure life where I got to go after my hopes and dreams versus communities across this country, like the one that my birth siblings grew up in, where most of your day-to-day is about survival. So so that's really the personal reason why I got started uh, in, in representative politics. Uh, but also, it was, a, it was a huge interest of mine in college. I went to St. Mary's College of California in the Bay Area. And we had a politics department that was very, very progressive, very action-centered, where they really wanted us to understand not just the theory of politics, but what it meant to be an agent of change within a political system that we have today. Uh, and that was, that was quite an opportunity, especially having friends that were political science majors at other universities and, and weren't afforded that opportunity to act on the things that they were being taught and more so... Um, we're just regurgitating right um, a curriculum that was given to them. So for me, my junior year, I was very lucky to be accepted into American University's um, summer internship semester program. And I went out to Washington, D.C. for four and a half months and was able to work for Congressman Stephen Horsford, who represents Nevada's 4th District, um, Congressional Platt Caucus member. And I really got my first taste, right, of following a legislative director everywhere he went um, and (laughs) sitting in committee rooms. Um, And I was so lucky that he sat on government oversight and reform. And so I really got to see the issues that our government were, was looking to challenge, right, and looking to change 
this was back in the summer of 2014. I think most of us would refer to this as the heyday <laughs> of, of President Barack Obama and just, you know, feeling real good about being an American, right? Feeling real good about our prospects for change and, and where we were headed. And, you know, as they say in D.C., um, I, I caught Potomac fever um, and, and really, really saw an opportunity for myself to become an agent of change. So eventually I, I came home to Oakland, California, and I was very lucky that Congresswoman Barbara Lee had her congressional staff assistant position open. And uh, I was hired by Julie Nixon, who was her chief of staff. And this would, this would go on to me really getting involved in my community. I feel like district staffs don't get the love that they deserve. We usually hear about the, the big guns um, on Capitol Hill, and they're very much supported by their district staff colleagues that are back in whatever district their member represents. And I went on from there to be a district representative for state Senator Nancy Skinner. She's the majority whip here in California. And that, that's where I really got my, my fuel to become more of an expert on a policy issue. Uh, I was lucky enough to have her tap me to be um, one of two staff members that oversaw her public safety portfolio, which she was um, she's the chair of. And so we got to see all of the legislation that came through that would impact public safety, that would impact our criminal justice system here in California. And we had a piece of legislation, actually at the time it was just a resolution, uh, that was proposed to end the felony murder rule here in California. And for those listeners that aren't familiar, what that means in, in practice is that you can be out on the town with a friend or a partner or a colleague, and um, they can get into an altercation, or they can also have uh, preconceived plans that you are unaware of to take someone's life. And if that is to happen, you are held or you can be held just as accountable by prosecutors. Um, this is something that has heavily impacted communities of color across the country. And it was something that we wanted to end here in California. And eventually that did happen. But I was lucky enough to be uh, a staff member to help this charge. And the organization that wrote this resolution and then eventually would write and advocate for this piece of legislation uh, it was the Dream Corps, and the initiative is called Cut 50. Uh, and this this uh, organization was founded by Van Jones, um, and the initiative run at the time was run by Van Jones and Jessica Jackson, also another brilliant political strategist. Uh, they're both over at uh, Reform Alliance now, uh, but it was such a eye opening experience as a young, she's twenty five year old at that time, twenty four year old. To be working with, I mean, one, Van Jones had already been one of my idols. <laughs> um, and then um, Jessica Jackson quickly became um, and still is a mentor uh, of mine. And so I made the decision after working for Senator Skinner for two years that I, I wanted to concentrate specifically on criminal justice reform, uh, that freeing people from a racist, um, abusive, and injustice system was what my calling was going to be. So I reached out to Cut50. I reached out to, to Jessica and, and they happened to have a policy associate position open. And uh, I was able to go on and work, work for them. And we did a lot of great work at Cut50, which I'll, I'm happy to touch on more as, as we, we go through this interview. But when people ask me now, you know, where did you get your start? 
you know, I did work for the great Congresswoman Barbara Lee. I did work for State Senator Nancy Skinner, but working and learning from Van Jones and Jessica Jackson and passing the federal and state legislation that we were able to in 2018 and 2019, um, that's where I got my feet wet. That's where I got my confidence. That that's the reason that I am now able to say that I can I can lead legislative coalitions to to make structural change um, on any level. Uh, so that's that's where I got my start. Now, Michael, I don't know that all of our listeners will automatically know what the Bail Project is. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do at the Bail Project and how did this come about? Yeah, uh, so the Bail Project is also a criminal justice reform nonprofit. It's a national nonprofit. It got its start actually way back in 2007. Our CEO, Robin Steinberg, uh, another giant in the criminal justice reform space. She was a, a public defender, um, a defense attorney in New York State. And as she was working, she started to recognize how many of her clients, many clients of other defense attorneys were being held pre-trial. So they were being placed in pre-trial incarceration based on charges brought against them, but based on charges that they were not able to challenge yet, right? We have this uh, really, really unfair part of our criminal justice system, cash bail, uh, that basically says in practice that, okay, you have been arrested for a charge that a police officer or a sheriff um, is bringing against you. The people, right, represented by district attorneys are charging you uh, with, with a certain crime, but you don't have a chance to challenge those charges yet. And because we see you as a quote-unquote public safety threat, which usually um, is uh, language disguised as saying you are a black or brown person or you are a poor person, we are going to set a certain amount of money to give you your freedom. And here at the Bail Project, we don't believe in that. And Robin Steinberg didn't believe in that. Uh, we believe that freedom should be free um, and that you are innocent until proven guilty, that every American has the right to challenge charges that are brought against them, and that until, until that time, they should be walking the streets like everybody else. And so Robin decided that she was going to start the Bronx Freedom Fund. And in practice, the Freedom Fund was the pilot for what the Bail Project would soon become years later, uh, where there is a rotating bail fund that uh, pays for the freedom for those who are unjustly incarcerated before they are able to challenge their charges. And eventually, that person comes back and will be able to challenge their charges and that money, once the end of their case is, is seen, that money replenishes this fund so that it can go out and pay for somebody else's bail. Um, and so that was the roots of the bail project was the Bronx Freedom Fund started in 2007. Later on, Robin would go to give what is still one of the most watched TED Talks ever to talk about this broken system of cash bail and how it is really the oil that keeps the machine of mass incarceration running. If you think about it, anywhere from 92 to 97% of people that are incarcerated in our, our, in our local jails are incarcerated pre-trial, which means they have not been convicted of a single crime, right? They have not been given their day in court. They have not been able to challenge the charges that have been brought against them. Um, and so 
really the money, right, that is cash bail, right? These these bonds that are posted really financially keep these courthouses running, right? They keep these jails up, um, and they also uh, foot the seed money for for communities that uh, are still uneducated about how we actually create public safety and decide it's time to build another jail, right? It's time to retrofit um, this existing jail. Uh, and so that's why at the Bail Project we do this work is because we know and understand that cash bail is really, it's the gas in the engine of the car that is mass incarceration. Um, and so what we do is not only do we pay bails for our clients, but the community portion of community release with support, that model, that community support portion is that we go into communities that are already actively fighting against mass incarceration, right? We're not coming into communities that are unaware that this is a problem. Uh, But what we do our best to do is partner with organizations in these communities that are already giving out resources. And we try and connect our clients to these organizations whether they're in Charlotte, North Carolina, or Cleveland, Ohio, Northwest Arkansas, right? We are looking to the community and saying, hey, you know, if you're as fed up as we are when it comes to your community members being incarcerated, losing their housing, losing their their opportunity for employment, right? Losing their current employment, losing access to their children. If you're tired of uh, this problem, consistently happening to to your community then let's all step up together right if you are working at um, a substance abuse center and you know the reason why this client committed a crime is they were under the influence well then let's get them that health care that they so dearly need some groceries were stolen because they didn't have the money to pick between paying their rent and feeding their family well let's look for a food pantry or let's look for, for more employment opportunities, right? There are organizations that um, are able to help their community. And so we try and partner with as many of these organizations as we can in as many of the jurisdictions that we operate to ensure that our clients, as soon as we bail them out, we're not only bailing them out, but we're also getting them connected to the right resources that they need so that this doesn't happen again. That's, I mean, that's really powerful because it really kind of sits with one of the things that Casey and I have been talking about around the the role that advocacy organizations, nonprofit organizations, service organizations, even neighborhood groups are doing to create change in their communities, whatever that is, Um, whether it's service provision or kind of digging deeper into kind of addressing root causes um, and recognizing that the systems we have are broken. Right. right. But, and, and they're they're They are hurting people and they're, they're hurting black and brown people disproportionately for all sorts of reasons. But from your perspective, you know, how does this work fit into all of the other work that you've been doing around um, cr- the criminal legal system? What what's motivating you as an individual to keep doing this work? You know, I, there's I mean, I could go on and on about the reasons why I do this work, uh, why it's so important. I think when we look at the criminal justice system, we see 
a system that is, you know, the legacy of slavery. It's the legacy of Jim Crow. It is a system that is set up to control originally African slaves, African-American descendants of slaves. Uh, And really, the more diverse our country has become, the same system has been set up to control anybody who is uh, akin to that population. You know, it, it, it does exactly what it was meant to do. And so my motivation to change the system is that it, the numbers show that all of our societal problems from poverty um, to uh, mental health issues, to substance abuse issues, to a failing education system, <laughs> uh, especially for those who are in black and brown communities, incarcerating folks doesn't fix that problem, any of those problems. And to, to say that, right, hearing, hearing us say that now, it's almost um, laughable that that was ever going to be the answer to these problems, that we thought that uh, locking people up because they were poor, locking people up because they had a mental disorder, that somehow that was going to make people safer, you know, when I was working at Cut 50 and we were really pushing for the First Step Act on the federal level, one of the things that we communicated to folks was, especially on the federal level and even more so on the local level, around 90 to 92% of incarcerated peoples are coming home, right? So when you think about that, your problems not only still exist as a society, but you're sending what are usually already damaged people into an environment that is meant to break, right? Our criminal justice system right now is not meant to rehabilitate people. It's meant to break people. It's meant to punish people, right? It's meant to take the dignity away from people. Um, There's no empathy within our criminal justice system. There's no attempt to understand the circumstances that people are coming from and why they've made the decisions to do the things that they do. Uh, it's, I'm going to quote one of my favorite songs here um, and one of my favorite uh, artists, but I was listening to a song in my car yesterday, Changes by Tupac Shakur. And one of the lines that he has in there, it's just very short, but it's very real, is I've never committed a crime that I didn't have to do. And I think of how many people are sitting behind bars today that feel that exact same way, right? That what they were doing, although our penal system says that it's a crime and they should be punished for doing that because of the systemic racism and the systemic oppression to so many Americans, you know, I alluded to my birth siblings growing up in an environment where their decisions were based on survival, not based on their hopes and dreams, right? How many people feel like what they did was something that they had to do to survive? Um, Whether that is, you know, selling narcotics to bring in money because there's lack of opportunity and there was lack of education or consuming narcotics because of the pain and the mental disability um, without the, the actual, you know, mental guidance and, and healthcare necessary to, to help a person. So, you know, there are so many reasons to be involved in criminal justice reform, but for me, it's really the fact that I have such a personal connection when it comes to understanding that our criminal justice system has draconian sentencing laws and unfair policies 
that do not treat brown and black people the same as white people, that don't treat impoverished people the same as folks that have deep pockets, and that the system is stacked against those that have not. I think one of my you know favorite quotes as it comes to progressive activism is often said by two of my mentors, Glenn Martin and Louis L. Reed, who are also both giants in the criminal justice reform field. But they, they both often say that those closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but furthest away from the power. And I think you, I mean, pick an issue that we're trying to change to keep our representative democracy intact. Um, And that's true across the board, not just in criminal justice reform. It just happens that, to me, criminal justice reform is the issue that is closest a descendant of slavery. And I can't can't stand by and not be involved um, in, in dismantling that. Now, with the ongoing protests about uh, against police brutality and obviously the arrests of protesters in the wake of that, the work that you guys are doing at the Bail Project has really kind of come to the forefront. Even here in Cleveland, one of your uh, bail posters was actually arrested for violating curfew, even yep. though he was just going to freaking pay the bail. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... We were curious, how is it that the Bell Project and the work that you guys do, is this kind of complementary or creating space for civic engagement, right? So that folks that would like to exercise their right to protest, but are worried, right, about, well, if I get arrested, then what? Um, is this creating a space for that to actually, you know, occur for across all segments of the population? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think something that we, um, you know, we were <laughs> going along business as usual, right? Um, bailing people out on our sites, you know, creating partnerships to make sure that our clients are served, looking at, at new new possible sites. Where else can we help? Where else can we can we aid the community? And as soon as these protests exploded, right, we've had, um, you know, we've had staff members of the bail project arrested for protested arrested for going to post bail for our clients and you know it's a blessing to to have an opportunity to highlight the work that we do because we know it's important i think as it comes to civic engagement the bail project has taken on this opportunity and responsibility to get the word out to folks with people that may not have been paying attention to our issue, who may not have been looking at cash bail and the criminal justice system. You know, maybe they were uh, very involved in another progressive issue, but now that they see people getting arrested simply for exercising their constitutional right uh, to protest, ever since that started, I will tell you, helping to lead this partnerships team we have had at least five to 10 requests a day from either individuals or for-profit organizations that want to lend their expertise or their fundraising abilities or money to make sure that protesters are getting bailed out as soon as possible. And what I say to, to folks that are doing that is, okay, well, also get involved in this conversation long-term because I bet your bottom dollar there's going to be something else that we're going to be out here protesting for. And also, it's going to take a really long time for us to 
you know, have a police reform piece of legislation go through on the national level. I mean, we're all very aware of the hyper-partisan environment that we have. You know, Congress yet again failed last week to pass a police reform bill. It's sad, it's laughable that even in a moment like this, our national politics is not able to just drop um, the partisan bickering and partisan warfare to pass what is so so necessary right now. So that would be my challenge. Civic engagement would be get involved in the criminal justice reform conversation. And it doesn't have to be um, as big as building a coalition to push, push Congress to pass a police reform bill. It can be as simple as doing some research to see if your local public school system, if your district allows for police to be inside of our schools, right? Black and brown children are treated horribly in some of our public schools, a place that they should feel safe, that their curiosity and their minds should should be cultivated, right? That they should be given opportunities to ask questions, make mistakes, learn. They're being penalized for, for being young adults, for being adolescents, for being children. And so if you see that in your local community, police are still roaming the halls of your middle schools and high schools, speak up and say something. See if there's a local criminal justice reform organization or education reform organization that's willing to put together um, an amendment uh, that's willing to propose a change to your school board so that they can vote on getting police out of our schools. I'll give a shout out to, to, my, to my home city, Oakland, and, and the Bay Area in general, San Francisco and Oakland last week. Um, voted to defund and get police out of their public schools. It hasn't happened here in Los Angeles yet, but I will say that the the teachers union did have a vote last week as well that they wanted police out of their schools. And I really hope that the school board uh, follows suit. Um, so there are many ways that you can get involved in criminal justice reform that aren't maybe as as intense as the entire fight is, but you can play a role with your civic engagement in ensuring at least uh, in your local community that in one way or another, you're either defunding police or you're destructing, um, this extremely racist system. I really appreciate you saying that. I think that Casey and I talk about that a lot in terms of thinking about how do you make change and sometimes thinking that the only way to make change is pushing for federal legislation and then you don't know where to start and it feels overwhelming and then you just stop. But thinking that like, this is, these are huge. These are these are huge issues that are affecting us at the at the local level, at the federal level, at the global level, and that we can we can engage um, at in different spaces. Um, and so, this really brings me to my next question: in, in thinking about what revolutionary reform to the criminal legal system looks like, you know, there's been. Okay. We've talked about defunding the police. We've talked about reforming cash bill systems. We've talked about, you know, getting police presence out of schools, right? These are a lot of pieces of the puzzle, but a, a lot of this is a conversation about revolutionary reform. What does that mean to you? Um, yeah. <laughs> that's a big uh, question. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's a big question, um, you know, but but it's it's what's needed. Um, I think I, I'm, I'm in a lot of circles where we have this conversation what is revolutionary? What is progressive, right? What are these titles? And they need to be defined by people who believe in revolutionary change, that believe in progressive values, um, so that they're not hijacked, so that they're not used in the wrong context. All of those things, right? Getting police out of our schools, 
defunding our our local police, sheriff's departments, going all the way up to the federal level, right? People want to dismantle and do away with ICE, right? These are all all huge ideas um, with huge opposition from, from the other side. But what revolutionary change means to me as it relates to criminal justice reform is fully reimagining what it, what justice actually is and what that means. It means that at the table, you not only have judges, district attorneys, attorney generals, elected officials, right? I, I brought that quote up by, um, by two of my mentors, Glenn Martin and Louis L. Reed. Again, those who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution. We need to bring people in and we need to listen to the voices of those who are directly impacted because they are the ones that are going to be able to tell you what needs to change and how much needs to change and how it needs to change. We who are directly impacted also need to be the people who are in charge of that change. So I wouldn't say that the revolutionary change is a specific slogan, right? Defund the police. It's not a specific piece of legislation, the First Step Act. Um, It's not a specific campaign and cash bail, right? It's a willingness, a want, and a specific and concentrated effort to have those who have been impacted by the issue bring up the issues bring up the solutions and lead the efforts for those solutions to be implemented. It's not any of those who see a problem starting a campaign. If you care about criminal justice reform, if you want revolutionary change to come to criminal justice reform, then listen to the action steps given to you by those who are directly impacted. And there are so many organizations that have directly impacted folks that are leading the charge. You know, the Bail Project, Cut 50, Reform Alliance, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. You know, there are so many organizations that, of course, are in this game to to bring that legislation to the forefront that can create change. But one of the key elements of these organizations and organizations like them are that directly impacted people, formerly incarcerated people, are the ones that are putting together this legislation. They're the ones creating the digital marketing platform for the campaign. They're the ones that are out building the coalitions of unlikely allies to ensure that this legislation isn't just about a moment, right? That it's about a long-term structural change. And when I say directly impacted people, I don't just mean family members of folks that have been incarcerated. And I don't even mean people who have just been incarcerated. I also mean folks who have been victims of crime, right? We talk about restorative justice, right? We talk about judges, prosecutors, and the system that's been built to penalize with draconian sentencing, not being the ones who decide what justice means, right? It can simply start between a conversation of the person that committed the crime and the person that was the victim of the crime, right? They should decide together, what does justice mean, right? What does reconciliation mean? And then how do we re- rehabilitate, right? That, that's doing the work, right? It's hard. Um, it's an investment. Um, it's emotional. It's painful. But at the end of the day, it actually makes us a lot more safe. Right than having 
a police force that is militarized and looks like a a Navy SEAL unit (laughs) that is operating overseas. And so um, revolutionary change means totally deconstructing our law enforcement from our police officers to our sheriff's departments, to our local DA's office, to our attorney generals at the state level, to even our our, um, federal law enforcement officers and seeing where have we gone wrong and how can the community be involved in rebuilding a system of, of public safety and honoring and knowing the fact that public safety does not mean more police officers. It does not mean more jails, more prisons, more prosecutors, tougher sentences. It means empathizing. Um, it means uh, understanding and recognizing the broken systems that have led to a lack of reform and an investment in just evolving uh, this broken system. Michael, I feel like you have mostly answered this question, but I'm going to, so I'm going to ask it maybe a more tailored way, but so how can our listeners get involved in the bail project? Obviously I'm assuming, right? Well, I'm not assuming because I went on and donated already, but they can go on to the website (laughs) and donate. But besides that, are there any specific, um, action items that people can take? Are there other uh, criminal justice reform efforts that you would recommend that people go and check out? I know that you've talked about a few of them today. Are there any other ones that you really highly recommend people to go check out and so that they can really kind of dig into what is what it is that it takes to make a difference when you're talking about reforming criminal justice? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of uh, really good movements that are out there. And <laughs> believe it or not, criminal justice reform movement is relatively small um i guess in the sense that like we we all work together in one way or another especially here in california but across the country there are many different efforts you know i think you know i love to to put on a pedestal the bail project and cut 50 but that's having an inherent bias because I love um, the organizations that I've worked for. One that I'm really a big fan of right here in California that's shooting to end mass incarceration is Initiate Justice. Um, they're a California organization that I that I really love and respect. I think they do a really, really good job of holding members accountable in a state where I think we take our super majority for granted on the state level, right? That we have a blue assembly, a blue Senate, a blue governor's mansion. Um, That's not likely going to change anytime soon, but you have moderate members, right? In these seats, politics is still politics. The language and threat of the vote during an election year is still very, very strong. And so organizations like Initiate Justice they hold those moderate members accountable, right? Making sure that they do not sway from moving forward uh, when it comes to criminal justice reform uh, and also holding local, local local elected officials accountable as well. But I would say for the listeners, if you want to get involved, civic engagement is about giving effort. I never, never try and sugarcoat this. A representative democracy is not just showing up on election day, right? It's paying attention to what your representatives are authoring and paying attention to what organizations hold sway over their vote, over the amendments that they might be proposing. And I know it can be exhausting. 
I love this work. I am a political nerd. So like, this is the easiest thing in the world for me to do because it's what I do for fun. But I understand for somebody who may not be in this business, you know, you have your career, you have your kids, your wife, your husband, your partner, your parents that you have to take care of. But at the end of the day, the home you live in, the community you live in, the person, the bank that you're paying your mortgage to, the the business that you're paying your rent to, they all care about politics. They're all doing their very best to sway decisions um, so that they are, are represented um, the way that they feel suit. And so um, if you want to get involved in the criminal justice reform effort, I would pay attention to your local city council, to your county board of soups, especially. County board of supervisors has the huge power of being the only oversight over your sheriff's department and your district attorney, who are two of the most powerful agents within criminal justice that are often over-incarcerating, over-surveilling, and over-sentencing impoverished communities and communities of color. So that's where I would start. I would start your local county board of supervisors and paying attention to your district attorney's races and your sheriff's races. Those are two of the most powerful agents in criminal justice, and they do a lot of damage. Um, Even right here in Los Angeles, we're trying to oust district attorney um, Jackie Lacey, this is this is coming from Michael Deegan McCree, not the Bail Project, as the Bail Project cannot have any sway um, in any elected campaign. But I'm using that as an example for the listeners. Um, it's a big time race. Um, it is one of the biggest district attorney's offices in the country. Uh, and no matter where you live, there is an office just like it with a very similar power and a huge lack of oversight. And the only true oversight is the civic engagement of the constituents that that those district attorney's offices serve. And so I would pay a lot of attention to that race. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Any final words of wisdom for our listeners? Anything that we missed that you really want to make sure people know about? Yeah, um, I think we've we've covered a lot, which I really appreciate. I really appreciate the questions that you guys have asked. I, I think one of the things that I'm really, really trying to uh, get out there as a message. And, you know, the bail project has done a amazing job so far, um, especially since the deputized murder of Ahmad Aubrey, um, and then also the two law enforcement lynchings of Breonna Taylor and of George Floyd is really recognizing that the criminal justice system and all of our systems, whether it's housing, education, healthcare, really neglect and punish African Americans and people of color simply for being African American and people of color. I don't think that point can be stressed enough. Um, no matter what I'm I'm doing, whether I'm on a panel or a podcast or an interview, I really try and close with this point to anybody that is white that sees themselves as an ally that sees themselves as a progressive i really challenge you to think to yourself how far are you willing to go because one thing that we do see is that a lot of white progressives don't want to talk about race don't want to confront the idea of race and don't want to do that because it's painful right? It's, it's a really hard conversation to have. 
and being a consistent agent of progressive change as it relates to, to race is scary. And you have lived in a world that has told you everything is yours, which it is, but you're going to have to sacrifice that in order to be an ally. Being an ally means sometimes putting your body in front of a person of color during a protest because we have seen time and time again that police will not do the things to white people that they will do to people of color. It sometimes means sacrificing your personal relationships. Sometimes it means sacrificing your professional connections. And sometimes it means putting your friends, family, and your whiteness in jeopardy. But that's what it's going to take uh, in order for us to, to make the changes that are necessary. And so that's kind of my final message is really sit and take a second and evaluate what you are willing to sacrifice. And I've said this to my friends, my family, my followers on social media. I, and not, not all, not all people feel like this, but personally, I am more than happy to be the person to set you on your journey of opting in right? Like we need you as an ally. We're obviously doing the work for ourselves, for our own community, but I'm, I'm happy to send you what books you need to read. I'm happy to send you what black owned businesses you can be shopping from, what organizations you can be giving money to, right? And it doesn't mean you need to be out here in the streets pro- protesting. It doesn't mean that, that you need to, uh, that you need to, to sacrifice a professional relationship or a personal relationship. It can be as simple as giving $15 a month to the NAACP's college fund, right? Uh, to ensure that there are funds for um, disadvantaged African-American youth to go to college, right? It's as, it's as simple as buying from your local African-American or POC market instead of shopping at Safeway or Whole Foods or Trader Joe's. It's as simple as reading you know, Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America by Dr. Michael Eric Dyson. These are the things that can educate you and can test, you know, where are you? Where are you in your allyship? Are you really a progressive, right? Taking an internal look at that. And also, if you have children, how are you teaching them? Are you teaching them to be colorblind, which is actually more destructive than than teaching them to have a full understanding of what race means and how it's played out in the world that that they are going to be hopefully a leader in one day. Um, so I think those are some of the the most important things that that I love to to leave listeners with. And my my social media is always open and I am always receptive to people sending me direct messages and and having a conversation about what that means and what role they can play. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure having you on today. I mean, not just to learn about the Bail Project, which is obviously doing fabulous work, but to learn about you and your goals. And and I can't wait to vote for you for, I don't know, what, president one day? Should we just say that? <laughs> oh, man, I do I do not want that job. <laughs> you don't want all the gray hair? I, I do not want that job. But, um, you know, I, I do, I, I will say, um, I do hope to, to help build out in one way or another a, a organization that is investing in building capacity within the progressive movement to get the young leaders that I work with and that are coming behind me an opportunity to not have to worry about, you know, 
campaign finance um, in the sense of raising funds consistently and worry about, you know, how they're going to compete if, if the base doesn't support what they say and simply concentrate on, on our progressive platform and our progressive values and be able to run for office with pride, knowing that they are advocating for the right thing. So, so what I, what I hope to do is, is build at some point, build out an organization that is investing in candidates so that we don't just have one or two AOCs, right? Um, that we don't just have one upset as Jamal Bowen just upset um, Elliot Engel in New York 16th, right? That that is something across our country. That's something across the board. Um, that's something that the DNC really has to start thinking about when it comes to the platform that that they support, right? That there are many, many, many great young progressives out here ready to run for office and ready to rep- represent what we actually want. This does not mean that I do not want to run for office someday. Um, and I, I, I hope to have that opportunity, but I also want to build an infrastructure where candidates, you know, like Jamal Bowen in um, New York are not uh, few and far between. And that when they do announce their candidacy, they are a threat and that moderates and Republicans do know that this isn't just an ideology. It's not just a movement, but um, there's an active progressive machine that's being built. And at some point it's going to be uh, chalking up a lot of W's. (laughs) Um, So that's what I really look forward to doing. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate being here. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about filling the gap. We'll be talking to Adrian Wallace, founder of the nonprofit organization Underground.